Thank you, Devin. I've entitled this series that we began a number of weeks ago, um, Living Out Our Faith, and it's in the, probably the most practical book in the New Testament, the, the book of James. And, and really, Living Out Our Faith really answers the question that we're going to try to answer this morning, that the how and the what. If you were really motivated to live out your faith, just like hopefully we all are, you might ask yourself the question, well, how am I supposed to do that? supposed to live out my faith, that sounds pretty simple, uh, straightforward, but the, the how is not always as clear as we would want it to be. And, and then if we even get that question answered, which is kind of the motivation quen, question as, where, as well as the, the, the practical principles related to that, we might ask ourselves the question, well, what is it going to look like if I do live out my faith? Well, really, the book of James, all of the book of James really answers that question all the time, the how and the what, the how and the what, and it even related to the memory verse that you've all been working on, right? And I could ask any of you to come up and just quote that right from your memory. Uh, but that very simple memory verse, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's, that's a what a response. That's what we ought to be. We ought to be people when we encounter the, the difficult things in life that we respond not in despair but with a sense of joy because we know that God's going to work something good out of what we're experiencing. But we might ask the question, well, that's the what, what's the how? Well, the how was right after the what was given in verse 2. Become, after verse 2 comes verse 3. And verse 3 says, uh, and 4, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then verse 4 says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So as we think about how can you do this impossible thing, consider it joy when you're going through bad times, God says, well, ask for help. That's what wisdom is. Asking for God's help to get the right perspective on what you're experiencing. Well, that kind of... Back and forth is throughout this book, and we're now in another section where he does the how and the what. And as we wrestle with that, we need to realize that's really what God wants from us to understand what we ought to do and then how to do it. But it be, that does pre, uh, uh, presume that we do have a true faith relationship with God. Uh, yesterday, I was uh, working out at a gym, and I was, got into a spiritual conversation with one of the the guys there, and, and uh, we, we started talking about things, and one of the questions got around, well, where do you go to church? And he told me the church he went to, and, and I said, well, how long have you been going there? And he says, uh, nine and a half years, and I, I sing in the choir every Sunday. Oh, that, that's good. Um, he said, but, well, tell me a little bit about your faith. And he said, well, I, I, I would be what you would call a, a liberal churchgoer. And I go, well, what does that mean? You know, normally you think that in the political realm, but I, I was trying, well, explain that to you. Well, I'm a liberal churchgoer, which means I go faithfully, but I don't believe a word they say. Um, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say his first name is Mike, all right? Anybody with a name Mike, you got to pray a lot for, right? Well, you know, he was a person who was showing up, but he wasn't getting anything out of it because the reality is he didn't believe any of it. And really, that would be, I guess, the very, very first step if you're going to take steps of faith. Because really, faith begins at a moment, but it doesn't stop there. And if, if all this is nonsense to you, we're glad you're here, but hopefully you're still pursuing to see if this is really true. But once you come to a conviction that, that what we're talking about here, you know, and Jesus is truth personified, and then truth is in, in his word to tell us how to live out this, this person that we're following, um, how's that supposed to happen? 
Well, that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to look at kind of the, uh, the insights in, in, in helping us live out the how, and then we'll look at some what this morning as well. So if you have your, your outline this morning, we're going to look at how do we keep taking steps of faith. And, and really, this, the Christian life is described as a walk. And, and you're, you're never on a walk unless you're moving, right? And, and so as we think about the Christian life, it's not simply looking back in the past. Faith is always a, a present experience. We need to be taking steps now. It's good what we experienced in the past, but what are we doing now with our faith? And for us to live out our faith, we need to be motivated to live out our faith. And we need to learn how, we need to know how to live it out. And so we, we get this in the past as we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, beginning at verse 16, we're right in the kind of the middle of the chapter of chapter 1. Uh, James just spews it out in all brashness and honesty. And he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And so if you're looking at some ways to live it out, it, it, here's a good first place to start. How do you live out the Christian life? By refusing to be deceived. Now the reason James says to them, do not be deceived, because many of them were what? Deceived. Now, let's be honest, we as, as Christians can be just as deceived as anybody else. And if our radars are not, or our antennas are not, you know, alerts, we can believe a lie in living out our lives just like anybody else can. And all we have to do is think of all the things we've bought on infomercials or some kind of sales pitch where we just say, I need to have it, and then we bought it and we got buyer's regret. And that, that can happen. We might lose some things financially if we buy something we really don't need or doesn't really work. But there's more important things we ought to be afraid of or be fearful about or concerned about. Be, being deceived spiritually. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And really that theme is throughout Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 3, Paul put it this way. But I'm afraid. I'm always struck by when I read certain statements in the Bible uh, said by certain people that we look up to, like the Apostle Paul, I would say we probably look up to. And he says, I'm afraid. And I'm thinking, Paul, I didn't think you were afraid of anything. I mean, you, you have people who are trying to take your life and you keep preaching, doing the same things that they want to take your life because you're doing those things. You keep doing them. You've experienced being thrown in jail. You've been, experienced every kind of hardship you can imagine. You would be thinking if you were a fearful person, you'd be running away. But but he, but he keeps on going. But here he says, I'm afraid. And, and we need to think about all kinds of things. We've said this in the past. When, when the Bible says, do not be afraid, it's not saying don't experience that emotion that, that gets you, you know, filled with concern. It's saying don't, be, don't have an unhealthy fear. There are certain fears that are healthy. If, if, if you're standing on the edge of a cliff, you ought to be what? Afraid. That's a good fear. If, if you're on the edge of a cliff and you're not afraid, there's something what with you? Something wrong with you, right? And, and, and when Paul says here, I'm afraid, this is a good fear. He says, I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And, and the problem with um, this man I met, Mike, uh, is that he had missed the whole point of going to church. The, the whole point of going to church is, is to really be confronted with who Jesus is. If, if you don't get that, then everything else doesn't, doesn't make sense. You, you wouldn't believe much of what is said in a church unless you really believe that Jesus is the truth. 
And, and so Paul says, I'm afraid that you're going to be deceived. And deceived right in the very beginning. And, and then on from there that you miss the point. It's all about simply following Jesus. And the Galatians 6, 7 says this. Do not be deceived. But don't believe a lie. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, this he will also reap. Have you ever done something right before you did it? Say, I don't know if I should be doing this, I, or I probably shouldn't do this, or I shouldn't probably say this, or whatever it might be. Have you ever? I mean, you knew better. In other words, not only you weren't, there's being deceived, believing that which really you shouldn't believe, but sometimes you even know what you ought to do, and you still do it. And you're deceived not by what it, the action, but you're deceived by the consequences of the action. It won't be that bad, right? And God said, what? You're to be, you're, you can be seen on the front end or the back end. The back end, you say, there, there are no consequences or real consequences or really bad consequences. And God, don't be mocked. There's always consequences. So living out the Christian life, how do you do that? Is say, I am, I'm going to be a pursuer of truth. I'm going to be discerning. I won't buy every sales pitch that kind of gets me going down the wrong path. And then that will allow me to, to focus my attention on what God wants me to do. Uh, one, of the, <laughs> one of our people from the first service got me on that a little bit. We were, we were at um, the fellowship time, and I, and I, I picked up a, a food item. And, he said, and I said, what's this? And he said, well, it's got, it's got a fig in it. Oh, it must be good for me because a fig is a, is a fruit, right? Or is it a vegetable? What is a fig? It's a fruit. So if it's a fig, it's got to be good. So I took a bite, and I said, what do you mean it's good for you? It was, it was surrounded by a cookie. <laughs> well, just because you have a fig and a cookie doesn't make that cookie, what, healthy, right? But it, it made sense when I said it, right? It's got, it's got, it's got, a, it's got a fruit in it. It's got to be good for you. And so we, we can buy whatever it might be, but don't be deceived. Don't, don't buy the lie. Secondly, how do we do it? By refusing to be deceived. But secondly, by remembering God's goodness. Now, look at... Uh, James 1.17, he says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now, again, that's thrown right in the text here, but we, we need to linger a little bit upon this. What's the point here? As we try to pursue living out our faith, often what will trip us up is at any moment in time, we, we doubt God's goodness. And just like Eve was deceived, she bought a lie from Satan in the, in the garden. What followed very quickly from believing a lie that, that Satan tempted Eve with, she began to doubt God's goodness. And, and there, there are times when we think about God's good. If we were on a theological test, you believe God is good, we'd all say yes. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is when you're going through an experience where you are being so, so overwhelmed by or, or just you're obsessed with and it's, it's so disappointing to you or frustrating or irritating, you will, we all do, eventually will throw the blame back to God. God, how could you allow this to happen to me or to a loved one. And we begin to doubt the goodness of God. And we'll never follow God closely if we doubt it's a good thing to do. 
Isn't that true? I mean, none of us would. Why, why would you follow God if he's not good? And yet, that's what James is saying very bluntly. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Now, you can break down that verse and kind of highlight some things. And I tried to do that in your outline this morning. His good gifts are complete. And that's what it's meant by that first phrase. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. You ever got a gift that you thought was good, and then you open it up, and then you begin rummaging through all the, all the things that's in the package, and you realize there's, there's something missing? Now, a lot of parents now are, have kind of learned this, but I remember when I was growing up, you, you would get a package, and, and you'd open it up, and it was a toy, something you could play with. But then you realize this toy needed what? Batteries. And you're going, wait, do we have the, you might have batteries in the house, but you don't have the type of battery that's needed for the toy. And you're going, oh, you're so disappointed because in the package, it's not, it's not complete. There's something missing. And if it wasn't, toy, if it wasn't batteries, maybe there was, there was a part missing. Have, have you ever tried to put something together and, and you would swear that somebody left out a part, you know, whether it was a screw or whatever it was, and, or there's a piece and you're trying to put it together and there's, it's not there. For some of you who, who like to put jigsaw puzzles together, isn't it one of the most frustrating things to put together a jigsaw puzzle and there's a what missing? A piece missing? Now, I saw that. I never put together jigsaw puzzles bigger than eight pieces, all right? But, but you know, is, is you can have something in life, and you think it's so good, and then you realize it's incomplete. There's something missing. But, but God says, look, I want you to understand that, that my gifts are, are perfect. The word there means literally it, it's, it's brought to its intended end, its purpose. Now, we might think something in life is missing, but, but God's saying, no, it's not missing. You just don't see the bigger picture. But we need to understand that God has called us to be believers and not understanders. We're not going to always understand what's going on. And, and that's where our faith comes in. I, I'm going to believe this is a perfect gift that, what, that has now been presented to me, and, and I'm, I'm going to live it out. And see, right here, some, some of us might be struggling in our walk with God because we're not totally convinced that God's always good or that His gifts are totally complete or God will never change. And we're going to look at both of those things in just a moment. But, but that's, that's how we live it out. By, by coming to that point in our life, I believe in God's goodness. And, and that he's not, he's not left something out of my, my box. That whatever I go through, I can, he can be trusted. Even during those difficult times, those trials, which seem to be enduring. But he is good. So remembering God's goodness, first of all, his, his good gifts are complete. Secondly, his good gifts are consistent. And we, and we get that from the phrase in James 1.17 where it says, Coming down from the Father of lights. The idea of coming down is in the present tense. It's the idea. It's an ongoing flow from God. In Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount wrote this, ask or said this, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And the whole idea there again is, is implied in that because again the present tense of those verbs there is that 
Every time you ask, you will receive. Every time you come to God, he will provide. And then he talks about that in terms of how consistent this gift is. He says, or, or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, he will give him a stone? Or he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your fathers in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And, and, G, and what Jesus does, he goes from the argument from the greater to the lesser. Even, even poor parents won't play this kind of trick on their kids, ever. Loaves of bread in that day looked often like certain stones in Israel. I mean, by color and by shape. And no parent, just even not even the best of parents, would, would use this as a, as, a, as a trick on their child by giving something that if they took a big bite in, it would break every tooth in their, in their mouth. Or, or no one would, would give a child something that looked like it was edible, like a fish, and bring something that might, might poison them, like a serpent or a snake. And he said, if, if that be true of just imperfect parents, and let me ask you, are, for those of you who had parents or are parents, were they, were they perfect and were you perfect? But even those would, would not do this. He said, if that be true, how about your heavenly Father? He will always give what it's needed. But there's another point about God's goodness that I think is hopeful. Where does that come from? Because part of why we doubt the goodness of God is because we've experienced people we thought were good weren't always good, right? And everything they gave weren't always good. But God, uh, because people change, don't they? They, some people can change from one day to the next. You know, people crawl out of the bed and sometimes just coming out in the, in, in the room where everybody else says, you can know almost instantly what kind of what are they, are in, they are in. What kind of mood, right? Because people's moods change. And when people's moods change, their actions change. And because we experience that all the time, whether it be at home or at work or at school or whatever it might be, and we, we see that sometimes we're with certain people and you have to walk on what kind of sh- uh, shells? Eggshells, because you know if you don't walk just exactly right, you're going you're to somehow cause all kinds of things to happen in, in their lives that will now spill over into your lives. Because people change, sometimes from one day to the next. And we know sometimes they change from one year to the next, but whatever it might be, people change. And he goes on and says this, the reason you can believe that God's, good, God's gifts are complete, always good, and, 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 and uh, consistent, always good, he says because God is changeless. God's Good gifts are changeless because God is changeless. He says this, he says, Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now, I think there is one time a day when there are no shadows. If you're walking around, that is when the sun is at what? High noon, right? If it's right above you, 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 you can walk around you'll never find your shadow. And what he, what he says about God is, is that God has no shadows, no darkness in him. 1 John 1, 5 says this, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There's no shifting cha- shadow. He doesn't change. I put one wrong, wrong reference down in your outline, but Malachi 3, 6 says this, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. He does not change. Hebrews 13, 8 says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
He can be trusted. The, the, the phrase father of lights was a Hebraic expression uh, just referring to the, the God who has created everything. Someone has estimated there are 10 octillion stars in the universe. I have no idea what octillion is, okay? But it sounds to me like a lot, right? 10 octillion star. He put every single one of them in place. And not only did he put them in place, but he put them in whatever constellation he wanted, and he, he, he created all the physical laws that keep them where they're at. And God is the author of light. And so as we go through life and we, we get challenged about, about following God, we need to remember he is, he is good and he's good, what, all the time. So how do we live the Christian life? By deciding and refusing to be deceived, not by the lie that the world offers and the enemy offers. Secondly, by remembering that God is good. And then thirdly, and we won't spend any time really on this, is by recognizing the amazing result when we follow God. In, for, in James 1.18, he says this, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, that's kind of biblical language. Say, that, that sounds colorful. What do you mean by that? Okay. One is we need to realize that, that, that God is the author of what happens in life. It's according to his will. So, being part of God's family wasn't because we were smarter than the average bear, you know, or smarter than the average person around. It's that God drew us to himself. But the, really the emphasis is what was the result of that? He says, you're a kind of the first fruit of his creatures. The, the major result of trying to live out your faith is, is that, that God has done such an amazing thing in your life. What, what position he's now placed you in. If you're a... If you're uh, recovering or non-recovering sportsaholic, uh, in, the NFL is now kind of taking over the sports world. It is, uh, right now there's the NBA playoffs, but in, in the NFL is just a multi-billion dollar business. The point now is even the little things they do get so much coverage. They're, they're now drafting athletes, okay? And for weeks they've been talking about who's going to be the number one draft choice in the NFL, which places a player on a team. And, and part of that is a money thing, but part of that, it's a great honor to be the first person picked among all the players who played college football. And that's a, that's a great honor. That's a great privilege. And, and what I want you to understand is that was the first, you know, being first is always a fun place to be in. And God says to you, I want you to understand, I, by my own choice, have made you kind of like the first, the first fruit of all the creatures. And so if you've, and we've talked about this many times, if you've ever been in that experience where you were like, uh, if not the last pick, one of the last picks, you know, that, that is not true with God. That God, if you were in the back of the line, he just brought you to the front of the line. And, and you are the, the fruit of what Jesus has done, and you are the first of all his creatures. And, and so at times when we wake up and we're, uh, we're maybe you know, falling out of bed and whatever emotional mood we're in, but maybe in a spiritual mood. You know, there are spiritual moods too. I'm kind of tired of this whole Christian life, you know, this whole trying to pursue what God wants me. I'm, I'd rather just kind of kind of just skate now. And God says, don't buy that lie. You've got so much to live for. 
You, you have one to follow that, that is so amazing. You, you need to understand that this is a great opportunity to be faithful to the one who's done so much for you. Don't be deceived. When you doubt the goodness of God because some, some things that aren't so good ha- have happened to your life, realize that that's, God's not the author of the things that are bad in your life. In fact, he's so miraculous, he can turn that which is bad and turn it into something that it can be good. And, and then understand, look at it, in the midst of all that, what, what's an amazing result of you placing your faith in him? You're now first among all the creatures that God has made. 1 John 1, 5 says that, that what he happens, when we become part of his beloved, we become children of God. It, it really doesn't get any better than that. Well, that's the how. Remind yourself, today I don't want to buy a lie. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to go down the wrong path. I mean, that's just foolishness. Secondly, I want to remember God's goodness, and I want to remember the amazing, recognize the amazing result of following after God. But what is it that God wants me to do? Well, I'm just going to look at two of the points I have in your outline this morning because they're, they're so comprehensive, and it's where we all live. And it's very practical. It's very simple. He says this, verse 19 and 20. This you know, my beloved brethren. And I was saying in the first service, I wonder why he keeps calling them beloved brethren. He could just call them brethren. He could have just said, this, um, this you know my family. But he said beloved family. Now, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, we all have family, and some family, parts of our family, our extended family, are easier to love than others. Would we all agree with that? Some we like to spend time with, and some we're hoping they go home pretty quick, right? You know what it might be? Okay. So, so he's saying to you, okay, I want you to understand, I'm, I'm saying these things that are rather challenging to you, not because I don't care about you, because you're part of my, my closest companions. I really love you. And then he's about to say something to him them, that, that is overwhelmingly difficult to do. And we need to understand that Christian life isn't just difficult, it's impossible. But that's the ongoing challenge, because the only way we can do this is for God living his life out through us. So this is what he says to, says to them. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And the anger, and he gives a reason for that, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So what is it God wants us all to do this week and every week if we are following him and motivated to live for him? He wants us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now what is that? What is that uh, to live that out? Well, let's, let's look at part of the challenge, challenge of that. Um, he wants us to be quick to hear. Some have estimated that there and I don't, know, I don't know how you can count this, but every second, billions and billions and billions of words are spoken. The question is, how many of them are actually heard? Uh, Paul Tournier, a uh, psychologist, Christian psychologist, said this, that really, if we were to, to somehow label a lot of conversations people have one to another, it would be dialogues among the deaf. You know, things are being said, but they're not being heard. You know, Jesus often said, he said, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him what? Hear. Which implied is, is that, you know, people are talking, but not many people are really listening. They're not really getting it. You know, it takes effort to really listen to what people say. And it's so easy not to. You know, you can't listen if you're self-absorbed. Where, where all you're concerned about yourself, you really don't care about what anybody else has to say. 
uh, you really can't listen if your mind is made up. Uh, what can you tell a person who knows it all? Absolutely what? Nothing, right? <laughs> what have they got to hear? They already, they've already heard it all. They already know it all. They can't hear anything because they think they've already got it. We would never be like that. Maybe not in every part of our life, but some, some parts of our life that were that way, aren't we? Wouldn't we be honest? So we, we don't really listen to people. We think we already got it. We can't listen if we're looking for the next word we want to put in, in, put in when they stop talking. We can't listen if we're too busy. Some of us, it's that way. We don't necessarily have bad motives. We're just running around so fast that we, we can't stop and listen. We can't listen if we're distracted. I don't know why my wife always wants to ask me a question right in the middle of something I'm watching, you know. I don't want to hear now. Can't we talk later? We can't listen if we, we don't, we're not focused. We can't listen if, if words are not important. Now, let me just talk about that for a moment. We, we really can't listen. I mean, we can, we can hear the sounds, maybe have got the words said to us, and we can maybe even regurgitate them back. But if words are not important, we're really not going to get it. And we live now in a visually dominated society. Would we, would we agree with that? And people like to, to get messages from pictures. Um, and and we, we even have cliches in our in our. Culture, I mean, this is actually an older one, but a picture is worth a... Now, I, I know why we say that. I've said that probably many times. But, but if, you, if you buy all of that, that's one of the reasons, and if I buy that, that's one of the reasons I don't listen as well as I should. If I really believe a picture is worth a thousand words, then why is it what you tell me that really important? Because you're speaking to me in words, not pictures, right? Now, I, I don't, you know, I've bought a number of children's Bibles for my children when they were growing up, and, and they had a few more of them. But I would dare say most of the Bibles you brought to church today, they don't have a whole lot of what? Pictures. It's interesting that when Jesus, uh, in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the picture no in the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god now that word has a picture within it but it's a word you know thy word have i hid in my heart not thy picture have i hid in my heart and, and so we, we need to be countercultural. we've got to believe that words are important if we're really going to listen and so right in the beginning of, of him now talking to his beloved brethren who at times I'm sure are not living this out, he said, I want you to be quick to hear. I was reading a comment by Adelaide Stevenson who went to Princeton to, to speak to the students and he said this, I understand I am here to speak and you are here to listen. Let's hope we both finish at the same time. <laughs> I think about that every Sunday. No, you know, in, in many ways, okay, that's, we're to listen to each other. And, and let's just be understand. I was thinking about this because uh, one of our, our newer members um, is doing a lot of things with world missions. And we need to understand, even when this letter was written and dispensed among the, the 12 tribes that were dispersed abroad, 
many of them probably could not read. And if they, if they, if they you know, because they might be, well, and if they could not read, we do probably know this, if they could read, many of them were not going to receive a personal copy of this. And, and so they were much closer to an oral tradition, and so that when, when the message was given, the, the letter was written from James to a particular church, maybe it was a house church or it was a small gathering, uh, about all they would get was the person reading the text. Now, the person might have responded by trying to explain the text or apply the text, the Bible, the, the, the words from James to their experience beyond that, but much of it was probably just read. And it is said during that period of time, the oral tradition, that many of them, once it was read a number of different times, they could almost commit what was read to memory. Now, why was it? Because they just were better memorizers than us? It's because they cherished each word that was given to them by the people inspired by God to give God's word to them. So they lingered on whatever was said and they put it in their heart. It wasn't, sometimes we think about people who are spiritual, you know, and you know, I come from this, well, this training that's because I'm, I'm, I read more than most of you do in terms of the Bible and things said about the Bible and word studies and all kinds of things like that. But it, it's not about just having more information, but it's really listening to what God has said. A person can be a very, very deep Christian, not because they're a great reader, but they really listen what God says. And that's also true about being great in relationships with other people. When you listen to people, you show to them that you care. And how do you become a better listener? Someone has said this, is that you become a better listener by being more concerned about understanding than being understood. That's the point. It, it, you see in the relationship is, it, is we can so often want to be the one governing or pushing the conversation. There's a place for us to speak into people's lives. But we're never going to be effective with that, with people what they need to really hear unless we, they really know we understand where they're coming from. And the way we understand where they're coming from is to listen to them deeply. So that's true in our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with people is that we need to listen well. So that's one of the what. So we need to be people who are quick to hear. And then he goes on and says, okay, I'm going to help you a little bit on how to do that. Be slow to speak. Part of what we can do in terms of just being better listeners is, is speak less. But, but it's also not only the, the being prepared to listen better, but what things come out of our mouth. Uh, Zeno, the Stoic philosopher, said this, We have two ears and one mouth, therefore we should listen twice as much as we speak. That would be a great monitor. You know, do, we, do we listen more, do we hear more, or do we speak more? The rabbis put it this way, The reason we have two ears and only one mouth, that we may uh, hear more and speak less. And then it says this, The ears are always open, ever to receive instruction, but the tongue is surrounded with a double row of teeth and lips to hedge it in and keep it within proper bounds. <laughs> Just think about that. You, you, now, I've heard people say they can wiggle their ears. Anybody here wiggle your ears very well? Okay. Some of you have raised your hand. But you probably can't close your ears like that, right? You can't put the flaps over them so that you cannot hear. 
Now your mouth, however, you can do that. You can close your lips and clench your teeth, and whatever comes out of your mouth doesn't sound like words, right? So as a constant reminder, the rabbi said, you ought to be quicker to hear and slower to speak. In your outline, I think I put that verse that's pretty challenging, particularly for people like me who speak a lot. Um, Proverbs 10.19 says this, Where there are many words, transgression or sin is unavoidable, but he who strains his lips is wise. You ever try to take back something you'd said? You know, and the only way to do that is say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I was wrong. But even when you do that, some of those words that you try to take back never return because it lingers with people. And so, so James is saying, okay, I want you to live out your faith. And, and part of living out of faith is as simple as this. I want you to be better listeners, and I want you to be people who, who speak less. And when you say something, it's, it's exactly what needs to be said. And so he challenges him that way to, to really just be very, very careful about what's communicated. And then finally, this, this, this morning, uh, he also wants us to be slow to anger. And he, he does give the, the rationale for that. Says, because anger, the anger of man never achieves the righteousness of God. Someone has written this. Uh, when Christians are angry, the church is no longer a, a lighthouse, but a towering inferno. <laughs> you know, a towering inferno will bring light, but light in the, in a, uh, the, the heat is so more... Um, abrasive that you don't even notice the light that's given from the flame. And uh, I don't have this in your outline, but in Proverbs 16, 32, it says, Whoever is slow to anger is, is better than the mighty, and he rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So God, God wants us to have a, a handle on our anger. And, and uh, I don't have a whole lot of time to kind of share with you some of the things I was going to share. But, but God wants us to be a people who understand that we, we need to have a, a control on how we respond to things that irritate us or cause us to, to want to blow up and just vent or, or do whatever comes first to mind. And anger is, is somewhat like temptation. The temptation, being tempted in any area, is not necessarily sin. In fact, it's not sin. Just to, to have a thought or a desire or a, a movement to a certain direction and then all of a sudden you realize, no, that's the wrong direction. That, that's not sin. And even the emotion of anger is not sin. So if you're just beating yourself up because you have certain feelings or respond to certain stimuli or things that happen with a, 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 a very volatile emotion, that's not sin. It's what you do with it becomes sin. And that's why in, James, in Ephesians 4.26 it says, Be angry and yet do not sin. In other words, you can be angry, but it won't re- react in, re- in sinful uh, re- uh, results if, if you have a control on how you express it or choosing not to express it. And part of that is a time frame. Do, do not let the sun go down in your anger because if you do that, your anger will turn to bitterness. You need to resolve whatever you're going through as quickly as possible. But, but he, what, what he is saying is you, you need to understand that if you're not dealing with your anger, your anger will be destructive. And even Jesus said, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And, and so anger needs to be dealt with. And, and we, we can't simply give a rationale for anger. Well, I'm sorry, I'm just an angry person. I was born that way. And that might be true. There might be some reasons, even medical reasons or physical reasons, why you have a more tendency to anger than other people. But what God says, I know you were born that way, but you've been born again. 
I will say, that's how I was raised. I know that's how you were raised, but when you became a Christian, the old things pass away, behold, new things have come. And you still might have tendencies toward that direction, but you need to understand that, that God's Spirit and God's Word and the fellowship of God's people and the, and, the, and, the, and the maturing growth in your faith will cause you to, to be, be able to overcome your anger. Well, what about righteous anger? Well, righteous, there is a righteous anger. Jesus got angry, and we know the Old Testament, interesting enough, the, the attribute that's used more often uh, other than one attribute, which is the word love, uh, the attribute of love, anger is throughout the Old Testament because ang- God was angry at sin. But righteous anger is, is really responding in two different ways. One is when you are trying to pro- uh, correct a wrong or to protect those who have been wrong and provide for them. But most of our anger is, is not in that, those two categories. I, I'm, I'm angry for other reasons. Some people say anger comes from three different sources. One is when you experience pain, the other's sadness, and the other's fear. And I, and I can see that. You know, when, when, when you have pain, you know, if, if you're working outside and you hit your thumb with, with a hammer, what emotion do you get? Anger. You're just so angry because, you know, it's so painful. And, you, you know, what are you going to do with this hammer? And you think the hammer did it to you. What really was your hand who did it to you? you know? And so you want to throw the hammer, right? Well, that, that pain force you to the emotion of, of anger. And what happens if you throw that hammer through a window, now you're angry for the window you threw it in, right? So it was destructive. The emotion of anger is okay, but what you do with that hammer is whether it becomes sinful or not, right? So, ang- so, so pain can do it. So when pain comes, you can have that emotion, but what do you do with it? Sadness. W- when you see someone hurt or when you've lost someone you love, there is the emotion of melancholy, but sometimes there's anger. You're just angry that, that whoever did that to that person or, who, or sometimes you'll throw that anger at God and you want to blame God. And, and you, that emotion is not wrong, but what you do with it and how long you allow it to linger then becomes sin. Or, or even fear. I don't, I don't know how many times I've seen athletes on a, on a field when, when they're about to lose a game and all chaos comes out and all of a sudden, they, I mean, the fouls get harder and they start, you know, in football, some guys try to take their heads off right toward the end of a game because, they, you know, they realize that the victory is now they're losing their grasp. And so they just, out of anger and rage, they begin just doing things that, that actually make it harder for them to win than it would be, but become uncontrolled uh, with that rage that's within and so all of us need to know what is it that we're, that we're getting angry about and how am I responding to it and how can I go down a different direction? Because the anger of man never achieves the righteousness of God. And all of these are related. When, I, when, when you're angry, you're going to say things you shouldn't say. Right? And when you're angry, you're not going to listen to what needs to be heard. And all those things contribute. And, and what James is saying, okay, I want you to live out your faith. And if you don't understand that you, you can't go through life undiscerning, you can't keep being deceived, you can't keep doing things that are foolish. And then secondly, when you're battling with what's going on in your life and you're just, you're just frustrated, you've got to remember God is good and He's always good. And when you're wondering, well, what do I have? He says, what, what do you have? You've got the amazing result of putting your faith in God. You're at, the, you're at the front of the line of all that which is most important. That will always motivate us to live out for Him. And then you, as you're thinking, well, what is it God wants me to do today? Well, it could be a lot of different things, but this is what will apply in every, every day you ever live. I want you to be quick to hear, slow to speak, 
and slow to anger. And when, when you live that way, people are going to say, What's, what do you have that I don't have? If they don't say it, that's what they're thinking. Because they see something in you that they want. A person that's not out of control but in control because they've got the spirit in control. Living out what they believe and say they believe. Let's pray together. God, you want us to be motivated to live for you. And then you want us to know what, is it, what does it mean to live for you. Father, I pray this week that we might just be overwhelmed by your goodness. And that we might so desire to be a people that honor you by what we say and what we don't say. By having a control of that which stirs us up so strongly. But might we do that which is productive constructive and not destructive. Help us to be a people that lives for you this week. We ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand this morning as we sing another.